Welcome to Hebrew Bible Insights, a podcast about making sense of the Hebrew Bible. I'm Matthew Delaney. I specialize in Hebrew, and my co-host, Dr. Nathan French, specializes in the ancient Near East history and culture, and together we're trying to help people understand the Old Testament. Today we have an interview with Dr. Joanna Klein. She is a professor at Gordon College, where she teaches Old Testament. She specializes in literary approaches to the Bible and early interpretation of Scripture. If you enjoy seeing connections between different biblical stories, you will love today's episode. Joanna talks about narrative analogy, when biblical stories are written in such a way to make comparisons to other stories that can lead to more avenues of interpretation. She sees connections between the story of David and the stories of Jacob, Judah, and Joseph. I really enjoyed our conversation with her. It was so enlightening, and I love seeing connections between different things. And this episode, I think, will spark so much curiosity and intrigue for you all. It'll probably make you want to read these stories again, see what you can find. Uh, and she's just a great person. We really enjoyed sitting down with her. So uh, thank you all for listening. And if you enjoy this, give this a review and share this with friends. And also, if you'd like, you can support us on Patreon uh, and get access to other content that we make. Without further ado, let's dive into today's episode. One of my favorite parts about the Hebrew Bible is seeing how interconnected everything is. If anyone's ever had a fun time doing Bible studies or reading a commentary and you see people make a connection, it's just the light bulb goes off. It's such a fun experience. And if you love that feeling, you're going to love today's interview. We have Dr. Joanna Klein with us today, and she, in fact, did her entire PhD dissertation on this concept, the idea that things are connected. But she connected some stories I've never seen anyone connect before, and I think it's going to be really fun for us to discuss but first, let's start with our guest that we have, uh, Dr. Joanna Klein. Thank you so much for joining me and yes, Dr. Nathan you. French on the podcast. It's great to be here. <laughs> so first, I would love uh, for you just to introduce yourself to us and to our listeners. Maybe someone uh, isn't familiar with you or your work. Maybe you can tell us a bit about yourself, uh, where you teach, and how you got into biblical studies. Sure. I teach at Gordon College in Wenham, Massachusetts. I went here as an undergrad also. Um, I was interested in the Bible ever since I was a kid. I was definitely a reader. I just love reading stories. Um, and so the Bible was part of that. So I started, I, I made it a goal to read through the Bible uh, starting when I was in third grade. Um, it took me till I was wow. in sixth grade to read through the whole thing. And uh, <laughs> some parts I got bogged down a little bit, but I did make it through. Um, I just always loved stories, especially um, Judges was a favorite book of mine when I was a kid. Um, and, you know, sometimes obscure corners of the Bible. So one time I wrote a story about uh, my friends and me putting us uh, in back in Bible times and uh, in light of the purity regulations in Leviticus 15. So I've always, <laughs> you know, sort of liked exploring some of those lesser known um, parts of the Bible, uh, but also narratives. So at Gordon, I ended up being a Bible and English major, um, double major in keeping with those major interests of mine. Um, and I, I didn't really know that I was going to end up um, in academia. I taught English in Russia for a couple of years. I worked in nonprofit for a little bit, but eventually uh, I really decided I did want to go into this field, um, applied to master's programs. And just as I was looking at different programs um, in Bible and comparative literature and even Russian, it uh, just became clear to me that I really did want to go the, the Old Testament route um, and <clears throat> study uh, Bible with a kind of literary angle. Um, and uh, through my programs, I also became really interested in interpretation of the Bible and how it was interpreted, interpreted especially in ancient times, early Judaism um, and, and Christianity in the New Testament, um, but other things like Dead Sea Scrolls and rabbinics. Um, and how the Bible, how biblical texts were interpreted in the process of them coming together into the Bible too, you know, what some people call interbiblical interpretation, um, which is sort of relevant to my project that I'll be talking about. So I would say, yeah, narrative is a huge interest um, to me. Wisdom literature also I've always been into and um, history of interpretation. What an origin story for a biblical scholar. I mean, this, this picture of a third grader reading Judges. Judges, Judges is, a, is her favorite book. Yeah, that's great. So fascinating. Um, yeah, we just recently did an episode on Samson and Judges. Such a fun book, too. Yeah. I, I really enjoyed that. Mm -hmm. 
yeah. um, that that's fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. So would you say that, uh, you know, what, what is your main passion in the field? Would you say it is, um, uh, sort of narrative study or hermeneutics? Uh, that's sort of the, the sense I'm getting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's hard to narrow it down. There's so many yeah. things, um, right. but I would say probably literary approaches to the Bible, um, would be a major interest and early interpretation. If I had to maybe pick the top two. Excellent. Good. Do you find that your students like it? Those kinds of approaches. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I haven't gotten to teach a class purely on either of those things, but I would okay. say I work them into all my classes. And um, I students are usually interested when you bring in something they've never seen, like rabbinic midrash or something that right. really it can be a little bit hard to access and understand when you're first yeah. reading it. And some people yeah. are surprised or just kind of baffled. But as you get, I think as you get into it, a lot of people um, can delight in it and find it interesting. Yes, excellent. It's true. I mean, I mean, it's definitely. Uh, I remember the first time I was exposed to rabbinic midrash, and I just thought, like, where are we going? Where this isn't Kansas anymore. <laughs> What's happening? Um, and in fact, Dr. French, I feel like isn't one of your uh, one of the things you do in one of your classes is is the is the the article about is the fish in Jonah? Yes, is yeah. It- so so yeah, my my Dr. <laughs> Mutter, right? My my uh, my doctoral supervisor. Lena Sophia Tiemeyer, uh, Professor Lena Sophia Tiemeyer, teaching at Uruburg, uh, in um, uh, School of Theology in Sweden now. She has an article in Vetus Testamentum called the, Gradical, the Grammatical Sex of Jonah's Fish. Because you have, it goes from a dog to a daga. Mm-hmm. And uh, so she has all this sort of history of interpretation then presents her own conclusions to why why we have a hay on the end of that, uh, uh, of the dog. But... Um, she talked about Rashi there at one point, and so I, I, I really hit my research students who are just coming into theology. I make them read this this article to to really uh, to really see how interpretation really works. But Rashi's interpretation was great. It was that uh, he was in the male fish, I think, and uh, was perfectly com- comfortable being there. So the Lord sent a female fish and, and got Jonah into the female fish and uh, the female fish was pregnant and all the little babies were in there. And uh, of course, uh, Jonah became uh, sort of annoyed and he knelt down and prayed at that point, if you will. So it's just, you know, what, what these, exege- these, these medieval exegetes came up with is just fantastic. So <laughs> Let's dive into your research. And I think it'd be helpful if we first just talk about the general do the general principle that you're applying when we have narrative um, narrative analogy. And so I wonder if you can break down, what is this? And I think it's fair first off to say it's, it's a niche within this idea of making connections. You know, people maybe have heard the words allusions, references, uh, what's narrative analogy? How does it play into the conversation of when people are making connection between narratives in the Bible? Yeah, so you're right that it is kind of a sub sub thing within illusion uh, more broadly and obviously something that happens in narratives uh, not just any text so it's when a narrative in a way kind of builds up this comparative structure that enables you to compare it with another narrative in the bible so a lot of times it would be done through similar maybe a series of similar plot plot points plot parallels um sometimes similar language uh, or keywords or images or motifs. Um, And it allows you to look at one story in light of another. Um, So there has to be some series of similarities, really, I think, for a narrative analogy to work for you to notice the connections between one narrative and and another. Uh, But usually there's significant differences, too. And that's part of the point is looking at you know, how does one story compare to another? And what does that say about the characterization of the characters in the story? What does it say about maybe the themes that are being developed or the theology of mm. the text? Mm. So on, on that note, I have a, a maybe a question we can jump right into. We, we use words, you'd mention inner biblical interpretation. Would you be, do you think you could um, unpack that a little bit, um, how that works? And, you know, I've heard things like allusion, echo maybe maybe unpack some of these words for us and and what they mean and and uh, maybe some of the methodology behind that yeah so people use inner biblical interpretation to talk about a text that 
eventually ended up in a canonical Bible, uh, in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, well, you could talk about it with the New Testament as well. Um, but a text that ended up in the Bible, um, commenting on, interpreting, exegeting, or somehow interacting with another text that <laughs> ended yeah. up in the Bible. Um, you know, sometimes in some of these cases, uh, people really want to establish which text came first and mm. then which text um, was alluding to that text, because sometimes that can have implications for the meaning or the purpose of the allusions. Um, with narrative analogy, I, I do try to engage in that conversation in my project some, um, more as kind of a historical question of, you know, how might these texts have come together over time. Mm. Uh, but I think with these narratives that are eventually coming together in, you could call it the Neotuch, like Genesis through Kings, into this one history of Israel, it's somewhat less important to untangle some of those dynamics um, mm. because some some of these some of this probably shaping and textual interaction happened. You know, the texts were maybe mutually influencing each other, or uh, it happened on kind of levels where all this all these texts were being put together in, into one history. That's what I think, at least. Um, and so, they were probably meant to be read alongside of each other, um, and. Um, so, so I think in terms of narrative analogy, um, how it can be different sometimes than some studies on illusion or echoes, um, some of those it's really important to look for um, particular verbal expressions that echo other ones that are unique, um, and those also play a role in narrative analogy and they help. Um, but because narrative analogy is working on a little bit of a bigger scale, not just kind of, you know, one verse alluding to another verse, maybe um, it's working on the level of whole narratives that uh, it has, I think, more to do with the kind of density of plot parallels and things like that. And so it's helpful if you see, you know, a unique phrase echoed in one narrative and another um, to establish that that, that there's an analogy there. Um, and you do see that in the examples that I treat, but um, it has to do more, I think, in narratives with this density of plot parallels, especially yeah. um, that can help build up an analogy. Yeah. Fascinating. Good. Yeah. That's really helpful. I, you know, I think about illusion, my main research has been Proverbs one through nine. And there are a couple of times there's some interesting illusion there, like um, whether the tree of the tree of life is mentioned explicitly, or there's an interesting potential allusion to the tree of knowledge, good and evil, yeah. they'll, they'll eat the fruit of their way. But it's not at, on any level a narrative analogy because it's not that extensive. Mm -hmm. And this is where what you're looking into with narrative analogy, there's a lot. Uh, it's, it's much more intense. There's a lot more going yeah. on to this. So there, yeah. I think there's a lot more that needs to then be explained about this. There's a lot more to dig up and to research with this. So let's just go ahead and dive into, you compared some uh, characters and stories. I haven't heard a lot of people compare, you know, my father-in-law, he used to be a Bible teacher in a high school. Uh, he's a pastor now, but he used to take his, some of his high school students to this course where he basically compared Jesus to Joseph and spent weeks going through this, right? So yeah. I've heard this before, or in the New Testament studies, you'll see people talk about Matthew wants to show that Jesus is a new Moses and there are these yeah. comparisons. Mm -hmm. But interestingly, you compare some of the patriarchal era people to David. So mm -hmm. I would love for you to maybe set up what's the general connection you see. Maybe start walking us through. Again, this is your PH dissertation. There's no way we're going to be able to cover everything. But maybe some things you want to share. And we can kind of just go back and forth with some questions as you walk us through your research. Sure. Um, so yeah, this is one that it can be harder for readers to notice because it is separated by such a lot of text in Genesis to, to Samuel. Um, and that's why I think, you know, some general readers or scholars uh, don't notice some of these connections. Um, there has been work done on it and especially the kind of maybe classical modern model of these connections was to posit that there was some kind of connection between the succession narrative and the, the Pentateuchal J source, the mm -hmm. Yahweh source, um, then they both came out of this same kind of Solomonic era um, milieu um, and they were related. So I, I deal with that a little bit, but I think it, the connections actually go much beyond, you know, the what people call the succession narrative and what people call J, which of course both are very debated now, um, what those actually are and if they exist. Um, so there, there are a lot of connections. Um, and it, I think it makes sense to see David and 
his family as connected with Jacob and his family at the outset, because obviously there's a genealogical connection um, from Jacob to Judah, his son, and then David is their descendant. So um, right off the bat, you know, they're, they're part of one family um, and that's, that's important. Um, but what I do in my project is um, I look at two parts of the David story that uh, really seem to have a lot of connections with um, the narratives in Genesis, especially about Jacob and his family. So focusing on the beginning of the David story, um, for Samuel 16 to 19, so when David is anointed, uh, David and Goliath story, and then parts of uh, his this, the narratives about his relationship with Saul. And then, so that's kind of one complex. Uh, and then the, the other one that I treat especially closely is for Samuel 11 to 13. So David and Bathsheba and then uh, Amnon and Tamar story that follows that. Um, so in both of these complexes, you can see David compared, especially with Joseph and Jacob, also Judah uh, in the, the second one. Um, and in the first group of stories at the beginning of the David story, the comparisons are mostly positive. So David uh, is compared positively with these characters. I'll talk about some of those details. And uh, then the connections turn a little bit negative and darker uh, in those mm -hmm. more negative stories about David and 2 Samuel. Um, so at the beginning of the story, David has a lot of similarities kind of on a a general level with Joseph. So he's um, youngest son. Joseph is almost the youngest. Uh, he's a shepherd. He's handsome. Um, and his father, well, both Joseph and um, David get this somewhat ambiguous sign at the beginning of the stories about them that they're going to have some kind of rule or authority. So for Joseph, it's the dreams. Uh, for David, it's the anointing by Samuel. Um, but in both cases, you don't actually see that really come to fruition or um, be fulfilled until much later in the story. Mm, um, so that's yeah. true for both of them. Interesting. Uh, and then both of them get sent by their fathers towards the beginning of their stories. They get sent on an errand by their fathers to check on their brothers. Um, for Joseph, this obviously kicks off, you know, the huge, uh, the huge drama of the narrative where his brothers sell him into slavery and he ends up in Egypt. Uh, but for David, he doesn't have as big of a conflict with his brothers. Uh, they, he gets sent to the battlefield um, where they're facing off with the Philistines. He does have a little bit of an argument with his brother, um, but it's not as big as uh, we see in the Joseph story. But just like Joseph, he never goes back home after that. Um, he ends up in the court of a ruler, um, rises to success because God is with him. So a lot of similarities with what happens to Joseph in Egypt. Um, and so right at the beginning of the stories, it seems like there's just a lot of similarities between Joseph and David. Um, and then as you go on in that beginning part of the David story, you see a lot of similarities between David and um, Jacob, especially in terms of their relationship with their father-in-laws, so Saul and Laban. <laughs> um, so for example, um, they both have these negotiations with um, their future father-in-law, fathers-in-law, um, over two daughters, an older and a younger daughter. Um, so for Jacob, you know, it's Rachel and Leah. He wants to marry Rachel. Um, Laban, does, he works for seven years. Uh, Laban deceives him and gives him Leah. And then he has to work for, he, then he gets to marry Rachel, but has to work for another seven years. Uh, with David, this, this, these stories are a little bit easier to overlook, but there's a, there's a part um, in 1 Samuel 18 where Saul says he's going to give David Merib, his daughter Merib, his older daughter. Um, but then it's not really explained, but it says when it was time for David to marry her, Saul gave her to someone else. So um, just like Laban, he seems to kind of go back on these uh, negotiations. Mm. Um, then the younger daughter gets, gets brought in. And so Saul says that um, David can marry his younger daughter, Michal, if he goes and uh, gruesomely gets 100 Philistine foreskins. Um, so David does that, but he actually gets 200, according to the Masoretic text, uh, it's 100 in the Septuagint. But um, so just like Jacob kind of interestingly has to double his mm, uh, service yeah. from seven years to 14 years, David ends up doubling uh, the bride price, kind of the service from 100 to 200 uh, Philistine foreskins. Um, then, uh, but both of them have this kind of, well, strained would be putting it um, gently relationship with their fathers-in-law. Uh, so, you know, they both end up having to run away um, and their wives, wife or wives, um, 
are on support them versus the father. So Jacob um, gets Rachel and Leah's support. They leave um, Laban and um, Rachel steals these teraphim and lies to her father about them. Uh, these household idols or something like that. Um, David has to flee from Saul because Saul wants to kill him. Um, Michal helps David um, and lies to Saul. She hides a teraphim dummy in a bed to trick Saul that it's David that's uh, sick in bed. And, um, and she lies to her father-in-law about that and, and helps David get away. Um, they both meet up again, uh, Jacob and Laban, Saul and David. They have a conversation about um, their relationship. They both make a, a swear, this agreement um, about how they're going to treat each other and, and their daughters in the future, um, at least with Laban. Um, so and then there's kind of an interesting twist, I think, in 1 Samuel 25 in this confrontation between David and Nabal, um, where uh, David actually becomes a kind of Esau figure rather than Jacob. Um, it, it, there's a lot of parallels between that scene mm. and Jacob and Esau meeting up. Um, Esau's mm. bringing 400 men, David's bringing 400 men. Interesting. Um, and they both, so Abigail becomes kind of the, um, the Jacob figure in that one. Hmm. That's super interesting because in that story too, David is almost depicted as the most um, just acting on his instincts, very aggressive. Mm -hmm. And he's almost had to, he's, I imagine like someone, a wrestler in a ring having to get held back, right? Like, yeah, right. You know, in a, in a with, great contrast to for Samuel 24 and 26, that sandwiched that story where he shows yeah. this enormous amount of restraint. Right. Um, and he has this chance to take Saul's life, who, you know, Saul's trying to kill him. He doesn't. Mm. Um, and then this big contrast in the, that middle chapter where he's willing to kill a man and all the guys in his household for an, over an insult, basically. And, and Abigail is the one who restrains, right? She's the yeah. wisdom in that, in that story. It's very interesting. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So on that note, I, I was pulling up here your dissertation because I was reading, I, I had read this line um, and I thought that this was fascinating. It's, kind of, it, 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 it's a question I have for you mm -hmm. and, and maybe, I don't know if you've thought much, much on it. Uh, so if you don't want to go into great detail on it, don't, don't, don't worry about that. But it says here, scholars who use a literary approach generally discuss the function of analogies on the level of the narrative itself rather than identifying a historical situation that motivates the parallels. And I think our listeners might already be having this on the back of their mind somewhat. So obviously all these parallels that we're going through does that. How do we think about sort of a narrative action on a textual literary level uh, and something that we, we, that many want to think is, is historical, right? So yeah. we're seeing these parallels. Have you, did you think about that much in your dissertation? Was that something that you covered or? I, yeah, you're talking about this tension between kind of literary shaping and then yes. implementation of historical events. Right. Yeah. Um, it's not, it's something that I kind of deliberately bracketed uh, in my, in mm -hmm. my dissertation. Um, but it's something that I've definitely thought about. Um, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I think, you know, when you hear about some literary shaping or editorial things or, you know, text developing over time, um, it does definitely bring up questions about historicity, of course. Um, I would say that in general, I don't I don't see literary approaches. Um, I think they're compatible with with historical approaches. Um, mm even though sometimes if people hear your story or narrative or literary artistry or something, they they hold that in kind of opposition to history. Um, but I think anybody who writes history, even today, uh, people writing historical works um, are going to be selective. Everybody's selective in what they write about. Um, even today, people use analogies a lot in history um, mm -hmm. to understand history. You know, we think about the COVID pandemic in light of the 1918 right. pandemic or, you know, wars uh, in or conflicts in, in terms of patterns with other ones to try to understand our present situation. We often think in terms of, you know, how is this similar to things in the past and how is it different from things in the past? So, so even today uh, we do that, I think, in, in history writing. And if you look at, you know, or a documentary or something like that, there's, they're selecting certain things to, to talk about and talking about them in certain ways. Um, and I do think that we we need to distinguish what we see as history and history writing also, even though there's some similarities with what we have in the Bible, which, um, you know, I don't think we need to hold to the same kind of standards as a, a newspaper reporter or something right. like that. Right. Um, so that's one thing. Um, but another thing is that, you know, people 
the biblical authors, even if they're presenting something that's historical, um, yeah, they're choosing certain things. They're also choosing certain words to use when other words could be used maybe, mm. um, and that, that might signal connections and things like that. So um, I don't think that even though I didn't um, focus on this really in my project on, you know, what's historical versus not historical or something like that. Um, I don't think that any of these things have to be seen in opposition to history or that they're not historical because they're literary. Um, So I think you can, there are ways of representing history um, in terms of shaping and stuff that could be, you know, uh, representing things that happened um, but choosing to represent, choosing to present certain episodes and not others, choosing to use certain words mm-hmm. um, or phrases and not others that would help highlight some of these sim- similarities. Excellent. Yeah, it's very good. That'll be very helpful, I think, for some of our listeners to think about some of that moving forward. And that's, that's, that's a very good point, too, I think, on, a, on just a, a sort of natural level. We do this all the time, don't we? We like to situate ourselves to understand and explain uh, what is happening or what has happened, uh, even in our lives, uh, or just on a more macro level in history general proper. Yes. So, Yeah, one thing I think about as a brief contemporary example that I want to go back to, something that Nathan's question reminded me for your research, is that uh, Michael Jordan documentary came out uh, probably a couple of years ago during the pandemic, and it was about a season that happened in the 90s, and they were sitting on this documentary footage for at least a couple decades yes. and they weren't doing anything with this. They knew at some point they were going to make a show about Michael Jordan, but they were sitting on it, sitting on it, sitting on it until it finally got the go. And some people think that, you know, right as, as LeBron James is maybe becoming some people are debating, Hey, maybe he's actually the best mm-hmm. player of all time. Michael Jordan may be in the background saying, Hey guys, go ahead, go for it. <laughs> and so it's not that, that the story of Michael Jordan isn't true by any means, all this have happened. This is all documentary. They do interviews, everything. But maybe they choose, you, you can only tell a documentary for so long, right? Like how many Michael Jordan stories can you put into one series? How many stories of David can you share? But if you're telling at a certain time in history, like when LeBron's around, there might be certain stories you include or not. This might be a bad analogy. Again, I don't want to compare modern history telling to, again, ancient Israel, but at least trying to give another contemporary example that people realize, again, that doesn't mean there's something disingenuous going on here. Right. Um, so question I asked, that's kind of in line of this. I found your, your uh, David and Goliath uh, chapter very interesting when you compare uh, Masoretic text to, uh, to one of the Septuagint manuscripts. Mm-hmm. Uh, was it Sinaiticus, Vaticanus? I can't remember which one it is. Uh, but anyway, I found this first off very interesting because looking at Septuagint, I remember when I first started learning about this, for some reason, the people I was around, they always gave me really bad examples. Like, oh, here's a huge difference. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, right. You're not motivating me to learn Septuagint Greek very well. But you give a fascinating mm-hmm. example where you look at a version of, of the sequences leading up to and through the fight with David between David and Goliath as it's presented in one of the major Septuagint codices, mm-hmm. as well as the one that we have in the Masoretic text. And so, again, not to put you so much on the spot because you have a huge dissertation. We weren't planning on asking you this. I was curious if you maybe want to talk a little bit about this as a microcosm example Mm -hmm. of Nathan's questions when it comes to selective Mm -hmm. uh, use of scenes. Yeah. Yeah. So what I noticed when I was looking at 1 Samuel 17 and 18, and this is one place in the Bible where you do have a big difference um, in Septuagint version and, and Masoretic text where this Septuagint version is much shorter. Um, and the, the Masoretic text version has some major pluses vis-a-vis the, the Masoretic text. So, and people, so people debate uh, which one is, is the original one, if you can call it that. Is it the shorter? Is it the longer one? Did, the, did a longer text get abbreviated? Did a shorter one get expanded? Um, I think for various reasons that it's more likely that a shorter one, uh, shorter text got expanded. And what's relevant to my project is that when you look at a lot of these pluses in MT, this the stuff that's additional um, vis-a-vis the Greek text, a lot of what I was seeing of the analogies is are on that level. So um, in in the Septuagint, um, you don't have the story about David being sent by his father um, to his brothers. So that's part of that. Um, that part. There's also besides the David and Goliath story, um, the part the part about um, 
Marib, David's um, the possibility of marriage to Marib in 1 Samuel 18 uh, is not there um, in, in Septuagint. That's a plus. Um, and then also uh, slightly less relevant for, for my project, but the scene with David and Jonathan where um, they make a covenant together and also one of the spear throwing um, scenes where Saul throws a spear at David is not, not there. So anyway, uh, a lot of these connections that I saw um, were on the level of these, these pluses. And so um, I wondered if maybe this was evidence that some of these analogies grew stronger over time. So maybe, you know, David was originally presented as similar to Joseph and Jacob in, in similar ways, um, but that as as these stories grew up over time, that uh, David became even more analogically similar. Mm, um, and, you know, there there may have, who knows how many traditions there were out there uh, about David and, and why authors included certain ones. And, you know, I'm not, uh, I can't make a lot of I, I can't come to an absolute conclusion about where this material came from in the pluses. Was it an independent source right. um, or was it always composed with the wider narrative in mind? Um, but it is interesting. I think that a lot of those analogical connections in that section come in those pluses. And so I, I do think it, it may be likely that some of these analogies over time were strengthened. And that might be the case with other parts of the David story, but we don't, just don't see the evidence as obviously we don't have um, such a control that we have with these two different versions in the Septuagint and the Masoretic text that we have for that particular part of the story. It's fascinating. Yeah. That, I mean, cause it is a good point that, that as texts are growing, the analogies can just get greater and greater. I mean, we could, you, you, you could expect that to be the case. Uh, uh, so that's, that's such a nice example. Um, I was going to ask you about the David story, uh, especially because there are some fascinating uh, correlations that you're making there uh, with uh, with Joseph, with Second Samuel uh, eleven through thirteen, especially, right. uh, and then what we have with Potiphar's wife uh, yeah, and yeah. Joseph as well, and then of course, and then when you move into Tamar, right, with mm-hmm. uh, uh, with Genesis thirty nine as well, I think that's all right. all fascinating. So. Um, Tell us a little bit about that, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot going on in this section, but um, with regard to David and Bathsheba story, I argue that it it's a kind of mirror image of the Joseph and Potiphar's wife. So you've had David set up as this, you know, Joseph-like ruler in really positive ways in First Samuel, and then you get to this moment in Second Samuel 11 where David fails in just in kind of the inverse of how Joseph succeeded. Um, and, and also the contrast between the, the positions of power that they're in or not Mm. in, in those stories, I think also serves to show how terrible, uh, what David did was in his adultery with Bathsheba, because Joseph was in this really, um, marginal, you know, position as a slave, um, in Potiphar's house. And, you know, he really suffers consequences from, uh, his, his turning down the advances of Potiphar's wife. She frames him, um, and he goes to jail. Um, so he's in this really vulnerable position and yet he still refuses, um, to have sex with Potiphar's wife, um, because he knows that it's wrong. Whereas David is in this absolutely completely powerful position. Um, and, he, he, you know, goes out of his way to um, commit adultery with this person that he knows is married. Um, Uriah is the one actually who becomes a kind of uh, Joseph figure in that story, because just like Mm -hmm. Potiphar's wife kept heckling Joseph over and over and he kept turning her down and saying, no, this would be wrong. Uh, It's, it's like that with David also. So David's trying to get Uriah to go home and be with his wife to cover this up. And Uriah just keeps turning him down because he thinks that's wrong. Um, And and Uriah obviously suffers consequences for that. Um, And so I think the seeing these, especially after all these positive comparisons between David and Joseph in first Samuel, it makes us seem even more tragic um, in how it plays out in, in second Samuel and, and David kind of, yeah, failing exactly where Joseph, you could see Joseph succeeding. And then um, second Samuel 13 has some really interesting stuff related to the Joseph story too, um, where you could argue that 
um, David's daughter Tamar becomes this kind of tragic Joseph figure. Um, she, they're the only two characters who wear this uh, ketonet passim, the long sleeve oh, garment, or oh. the of many colors. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes it's trans- translated differently in the two texts, so you could miss it if you're um, reading, possibly if you're reading an English translation. But that they're the only two figures that have uh, a coat like that. That's a, a, it's plays a role in their favorite status. You know, it's what Joseph gets from his father, his father loves him. Uh, it says for Tamar that that's the kind of garment that the virgin daughters of the queen with the king wore. So uh, it's kind mm. of a sign of her favorite status. Um, and in this scene with her brother Amnon, uh, he says, lie with me, which is exactly what Potiphar's wife says to Joseph, just the difference in the, the masculine and, and feminine endings on that. Um, and also Amnon, uh, says, send everyone out from me, this phrase, send everyone out from me, which is the same thing that, uh, Joseph says to his, uh, everybody when he's just about to reveal himself to his brothers. Um, Robert Alter has pointed out that these, these distinctive locutions occur in reverse order, uh, in the Tamar story, um, versus the, the Joseph story. And so it, it, and you also have this situation of um sibling sibling rivalry after uh the rape of tamar because uh absalom kills amnon because of this so you have this kind of reverse trajectory where the joseph story goes from sibling rivalry to reconciliation um and in the david story it goes from you know uh kind of uh, an okay situation to to one of sibling murder and and um just an ultimate picture of unreconciliation with rape and murder happening right in david's house um which eventually i think kind of also leads to absalom's revolt um and and you know eventually you see this tension on kind of a a kingdom level too with sheba's revolt and the inter-tribal um tensions as well so um, so it's a kind of, in a way, a kind of Joseph story in reverse. Um, there's a lot going on, but David also ex- plays a similar role to Jacob um, in uh, that Jacob played in Genesis 34, um, the story of the rape of Jacob's daughter, Dina, where Jacob is silent um, and the full brothers are the ones who take retribution on this town um, because of the rape. And similarly, David is silent um, in when his daughter is raped and the full brother of the the sister Absalom is the one who takes retribution murders his brother. Um, so there's a lot going on there and interesting connections with Genesis 38, another Tamar character. Yeah. Um, and uh, so there's a lot of, a lot of interesting connections there. One thing that's interesting is that you see both Judah and David having this illicit sexual relationship. Judah um, sleeps with, Tamar, his daughter-in-law, he doesn't recognize her, he thinks he's sleeping with a prostitute. Um, and that leads to the birth of these twins, the, con- the continuation of his family line, um, including Perez, who's the descendant of, um, or the ancestor of David. Um, so it's the story that that shows how, you know, it, Judah's line is in peril, and yet through this very sketchy circumstance, uh, this really important heir is born. Um, and likewise, David, you know, through this t- terrible sin with Bathsheba and murdering Uriah, he ends up marrying Bathsheba and giving, she gives birth to, to Solomon, this really important heir um, of David. So I think you see in both of these stories, this terrible situation um, that nevertheless, God seems to be working through to continue these family lines and bring them important descendants. Yeah, yeah, so many excellent. Connections. Yeah, it really is fascinating, and and interestingly, not identical. I mean, the connections are amazing, but but such different stories on one level yeah. too, and that's why I think your work is so fascinating because it really puts a language uh, to the methodology needed to sort of make these connections, and I I, I just found that extremely helpful. Uh, I'm currently writing an article on. The David story and the Joseph story, looking oh. at good at looking at how Tovera, good and evil, play in both of those stories in light of divine retribution. Mm. So this is going to be very helpful for me. Oh, good. But but now that you mentioned that too, about uh, your connection between Joseph and David, I thought, wow, this is this is really nice because really we have two stories on a macro level of wisdom. Mati, you'll like this too okay. with all your work on on wisdom, but. If you think about it, I mean, Joseph definitely follows through with wisdom all the way to the end, doesn't he? I mean, he he even doesn't bring retribution on his brothers. He 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 is able to see what God is doing in the midst. But but David in First Samuel six, 
with the Ark of the Covenant uh, that he's that he's that he's um, that he's bringing up. Right, Utsia reaches out his hand. He dies. David becomes angry, and then Mati. What is it? First uh, Samuel six uh, nine. I don't know. I forget the verse, but. It says that David becomes afraid of the Lord, that he becomes Yira uh, Adonai. And at that point, it's as if David becomes wise, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And from that point forward, David implements wisdom to get the ark where it needs to get to. He, he has, it seems the priests are carrying it. It seems that uh, he's wearing the ephod when he's dancing now, right? These sorts of things. But then there's a complete, uh, a complete collapse of wisdom when we get here to second samuel 11 yeah and it's detrimental to the rest of his life and like you said solomon ends up on the throne who mm-hmm. some have said is maybe even more the child of uriah than of david in a sense right uh you you see this in in, in other ways so so anyways i found um your dissertation very helpful to really put good uh, good language to that narrative uh comparative work so yeah, yeah. Before we go to kind of like some final analysis, let's say like the results of your research, what you see of what is, how does, how do these connections of narrative analogy impact our interpretation? I want to ask a more general question to you. Uh, I'm sure everyone's minds are being blown right now as they listen to you making all these wonderful connections and they're getting excited to read the Bible again, um, or they're motivated to keep, keep at it with their intense research that they're doing. Um, one of the questions that I have uh, for you is, you know, as you're presenting all this stuff, right, you're, we're realizing, hey, we're reminded about the intentionality of the authors and editors of uh, redactors of scripture, of the Hebrew Bible, what they're putting together. I wonder if you can speak to two different types of people in our audience. One is the type of person who they're either aspiring to or are doing the academic type of research. Second type of person who's not doing academic research, but they, they really care about their personal study of scripture. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you can give just a few, maybe tips or thoughts, or maybe cautions for people Mm -hmm. as they go about trying to take this literary approach to the Hebrew Bible and making connections like this. Do you have thoughts for those two different types of people? Sure. Um, yeah, I think nothing can beat just being immersed in the text and reading a lot and close Mm -hmm. reading. Um, because, you know, you're not going to see it if you don't read it. So that's just at the very basic <laughs> level. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of times I, I dealt with a more large scale uh, parallel or, you know, distant textual parallels. Um, a lot of times these analogies come in closer texts, texts that are closer to each other. So, um you know, the, the patterns in Genesis obvious are pretty obvious to people, the younger surpassing the, the elder and things yeah. like that. But you get other things like, you know, two near-death stories of Abraham's sons where they almost die in Genesis 21 and 22, Ishmael and then Isaac, you, you know, that are can, can kind of be read as a pair. Um, or things like uh, the contrast between Rahab and Achan uh, in mm. the stories about Jericho, the conquest of Jericho at the beginning of Joshua. You have this whole series of, con- of surprising contrast between this, you know, uh, Canaanite person who ends up avoiding um, being being wiped out um, with her family and and somebody, an Israelite person who ends up, um, you know, getting destroyed like the Canaanites are supposed to um, or the, the judges. There's interesting kind of keywords and connections and similarities among the judges. So I think sometimes starting with close by nearby narratives can help. But but you can see um, as you keep reading these these longer distance ones too, like mine, I think. Um, one thing, like I said, it's important to look for a density of parallels. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, you, you might notice some similarity, plot similarity to another one. And then I would say follow that up by looking closely. Are there other parallels? Is there a similar language? Um, do you see some kind of possible purpose for, for these narratives being read together? Um, and that can I think help see if this is an intentional thing or maybe just uh, you know a random one-off detail that just happens to be similar. Um, same with language too. I think you know you can notice something something that's similar language, um, but if you don't see a whole series of things in the narrative, I think it's probably less likely that that there's an intentional connection. Um, And for people who are, uh, well, one one resource, uh, just a really intro uh, one, but I think it's really helpful is. 
the Bible Project, their series, How to Read the Bible, has uh, one video called Design Patterns. Um, that's a good one just for a kind of introduction to this idea, I think. Good. Yeah. Um, but also just, you know, if you, reading and commentaries and things like that for people who are going further or articles, you know, sometimes somebody will notice or mention some kind of uh, connection or similarity, even offhand, if they're not, they're, they might not be doing um, this as a whole project, you know, but they'll mention a similarity in language to another passage or something like that. And some of the details I noticed came from stuff like that, um, where somebody else had noticed a connection, but hadn't really followed it through yeah. um, and, and looked more closely at it. So that's a way I think people could, could go farther. And that's a great part of original research. You know, I, when I looked at Proverbs 1 through 9 and see connections and flow between each of the didactic poems from one to the next, the next, the next, what I found is there are certain scholars that would say, hey, didactic poem 10 seems to have some sort of connection to this one over here. Mm-hmm. But they wouldn't go anywhere with it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so even though still the scholarly consensus is generally that there is no structure, order, and flow between all the chapters of 1 through 9, uh, more and more scholars are seeing something. It's mm-hmm. not their primary goal of their research. That's what I've been trying to do is say, hey, I'm seeing people are talking about these connections. Yeah. Yeah. And I see some more of the linguistic intentionality of same mm-hmm. Hebrew phrases throughout this. There's a flow of the message going on. So I think, look, I think there's plenty of work to be done in this type of area. You're doing stuff like this. And so again, part of, we hope that this in, in, encourages people yeah. in that research space right now, or encourages and inspires people who, on the front end, you know, we have a wide audience of all people from pastors to people who um, just love doing a lot of personal study, as well as people who are in, in, in college, all sorts of people. And we hope it continues to inspire people to join this great conversation. And you're an excellent model of this. Um, let's do this. Uh, Nathan, do you have any other questions before we go to the kind of the the end result of our research? Um, no, no, I think this is, I think this has been uh, really an excellent conversation so far. So um, I think um, what Dr. Klein's point there is great. And any of our students listening um, uh, should, should catch on to this, that when you're following scholars and they're making connections, but not following through, you got your research project right there, right? There's your paper that you can, <laughs> you can go and do because it's, yeah. it's a fun thing to, it's a fun thing to find in in the literature when uh when you're seeing the connections but uh but the follow-through isn't there you're you're onto something so uh very good so no let's uh let's go ahead and ask these uh these more concluding questions that'd be great yeah so i guess you know at the end of the day we see you see all these connections and so again and there's probably a lot we could possibly read into this but for you what have you found is some of the results of this comparative analogy analogy research yeah i think on the on one level, it has a lot to say about characterization. I've touched on that a little bit before. So when you look at, for example, uh, the, the one I was, this comparative analogy between David and Jacob at the, towards the beginning of the stories uh, with their relationship with their fathers-in-law. Uh, if you look at Jacob, you know, he has this kind of back and forth deceptive relationship with Laban, uh, whereas David is, is similar in a lot of those points of similarity in his relationship with Saul, um, but David is, looks completely innocent. Um, and you can see that just from reading the narrative itself, but I think it's underscored when you compare him with Jacob, who's, you know, going back and forth with Laban. Um, and he's a, he, and he's a deceptive character himself with, you know, his relationship with Esau. Um, and so you, this kind of innocence of David and uprightness of David is highlighted when you compare him, uh, with Jacob, same with, Saul and Laban, um, you know, Saul looks both uh, more evil than, than Laban. He's trying to kill David uh, for one thing, and uh, he's also less effective. So <laughs> Laban's able to actually uh, get some things he wants from Jacob, whereas Saul, uh, for all his murderous intentions, he ends up being completely ineffective. So um, part of it, I think, is that characterization piece. On a bigger level, I think maybe more important uh, is the development of themes that are really important to the narrative. So you can see like that the idea of measure for measure punishment, for example, is important in both of these narratives. And, you know, Jacob deceives his brother, then he's deceived by Laban. Um, And these things, you know, and and he's deceived by his sons in Genesis 34 and, and again in Genesis 37. So, you know, Jacob has these 
you know, he lives his life kind of uh, in, in some moments of it um, by deception. And then he is deceived by various characters as it goes on. So you can kind of you see that um, playing out in his life. You see it with David, too. So, you know, you can read the whole narrative of, you know, the second half of Second Samuel as basically um, the consequences of David's sin in Second Samuel 11. Um, and so these these kind of things that David does come back to, um, you know, on his head in various ways. Um, but I think when you put the, the narratives together, um, that theme is, is strengthened even more when you see that these certain sins that are that are repeated in the lives of Jacob and his family, sexual sins, violence, deception, yeah. you see the same things happening it's even more tragic in a way um, that, you know, his descendants are experiencing that too in David's family. Um, but then on a positive side, you know, as I addressed earlier, this idea that um, God's grace and provision for these families are continuing in the face of all this um, sin and recompense that God is still guiding this important family line um, and bringing good and uh, out of, out of these bad situations. And, you know, I think that's, that, theme God's providence or God's grace, you can see obviously in both narratives, but when you put them together with all these connections, um, it's another way to emphasize a theme like that. And, and you see it in the continuity of it through that, their whole family story and the story of Israel. Yeah. I thought about that. One of the themes you also point out was like the sibling rivalry right. theme. And it makes sense on the meta narrative of the, of the Hebrew Bible, every, everywhere from Genesis with the beginnings of the family Mm-hmm. all the way through to the division of the kingdom right. uh, at the end of Kings. And so it makes sense again, why, why authors would want to make sure we point that out at every level, everyone mm-hmm. from the early Genesis families to King David right. and, and all throughout that. Um, this creates such a world of, of connections, I think is, is so great. fun. I, yeah. I think, I think you're going to get a lot of people after this episode saying, man, I got to read Jake, uh, the Jacob story and David's story again. You know, I'm going to you know, go through everything they're saying. Uh, we know you're in the work of publishing your dissertation currently. Um, and so we'll be excited whenever that comes out, more people want to dig into yeah. all the details and the footnotes and see all the work you've done. Uh, we know this is very, and Nathan can speak to this, uh, how difficult and intense this kind of research is and all the time you committed. So thank you for doing this yeah. original research. Uh, this is very important work, and uh, we've been very happy to get to have a conversation with you to get more people to hear about the research you're doing uh, in this area. So thank you so much. Thanks yeah. for the opportunity. Yeah.